the top political lessons learned 2022. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. If you're just listening to us for the first time, welcome. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You never miss an episode. If you like what you hear, leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. This is like a throwback to the days where I did this podcast solo a few years ago because the other host, Patricia Murphy, is on a well-deserved vacation. And so I am manning the podcast booth. Well, I'm not solo because I have along with me producer Shaney B, who is making a couple cameos throughout this special podcast edition. Hey, Greg. It's great to be in Patricia's chair. It's nice and comfortable. <laughs> um you know, you're not getting her. You're not getting screenshots of her as she's, uh, you know, messing with her hair and like that, like you usually do to us. Um, so, and the background of her living room is is much much nicer than that of mine. But that's okay. We'll we'll make do. We're coming up on today's episode. We're going to go through a couple of the top lessons that we learned in 2022, and we'll pitch it forward to 2023. This is politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Well, okay, uh, I almost said, okay, Patricia. <laughs> it shows how you still... <laughs> okay, Shaney B. Um, if there's one lesson we learned this year, it's the split ticket trend is real. As our absent co-host says, it's the person, not the party. Because for the first time in a really long time, victory was possible for statewide candidates in Georgia, no matter their party. Republicans swept every constitutional statewide office from the governor on down to the school superintendent, but with one big exception. Senator Raphael Warnock, Democratic incumbent, won a full six-year term over Republican Herschel Walker, meaning that Democrats will now hold both U.S. Senate seats for the next four years. And, and why was that, Shane B? It's because Georgians cross party lines at, at a pretty big rate, 200,000 Voters backed Governor Brian Kemp, but not Herschel Walker. And polls and data show that a significant number of those voters stayed in Senator Raphael Warnock's corner doing the December 6th runoff against Herschel Walker. Those votes played the decisive factor. And they also bucked a trend that we heard from pundits and from national operatives and from some state Republican uh, officials who thought that voters would quote unquote, go home, that the lure of party loyalty would overcome any concerns they had about Herschel Walker's baggage, his personal issues, his inability to to clarify or, or make clear his stances on, on key issues. Um, 
you know, there, of course, he got a vast majority of the Republican vote. But with this election, it proved that there is this sort of consequential block of swing voters that might not number too many, but a couple hundred thousand of them could be the difference in an election in Georgia where the dynamics are so tight. So we saw a bunch of people that voted for Governor Kemp and then voted for Raphael Warnock. Did we see a spike in votes for the libertarian candidate? Did Chase Oliver fare better than your typical libertarian candidate? That's a good question because, yeah, um, we saw the third party candidate, Chase Oliver, in this case, become a safe harbor for some voters who couldn't stomach voting for either candidate. Usually we might see a libertarian get 1%, um, you know, very, very negligible number. Chase Oliver um, ended up more than doubling that. He ended up with a couple percentage points of support, enough to really drive this contest into a runoff, depriving both candidates of the 50% plus one margin they need to win outright. And, you know, in a weird quirk, Chase Oliver is now talking about running as a third party presidential candidate. So he's opened an exploratory committee to run for president in 2024. So we might not have heard the last of Chase Oliver. But again, most of these voters, you know, they might not be typical libertarian voters. Some, of course, were, but many of them, we heard from many of them, many of them were, were conservative leaning or Republican um, voters who couldn't stomach voting for Herschel Walker and instead kind of cast their ballot for the libertarian as a way not to vote for Senator Warnock, but also to deprive Herschel Walker of that support. What about, it's a plant. Will he be forming an exploratory committee by chance? Shane Hazel. It's a plant. You must be talking about Shane Hazel, the, the libertarian yes. candidate for governor against Stacey Abrams and Governor Brian Kemp, who did not fare nearly as well as uh, Chase Oliver did. He got about one percentage points left. Did not really attract too many protest votes because folks who heard him on that debate stage heard him talk about Austrian penal system or education system. I can't remember which one. The Prussian education system, the Austrian models. I can't remember all the, the stuff. But he, he uh, even if he, he thought his policies were sound, even if, even if he had a point to make, he was so abrasive to both Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams. I heard from even you know hardcore libertarian um, voters who couldn't back either of those candidates just vent about how rude he was to both candidates. So I think he turned off some supporters uh, to the extent that, you know, people who watched that debate were, were up in the air. We don't know how many people actually were, came into that debate undecided. But it was interruption after interruption after interruption. Speaking it was, of interruptions. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> Shank goes with the name. <laughs> Another lesson we learned, and this dovetails with split ticket trend, is that candidates matter. We saw Herschel Walker's football feud celebrity turn out to be both a blessing and a curse for Republicans in Georgia this cycle. The blessing, of course, came in the fact that he rolled through a Republican primary and helped him weather scandal after scandal with really not much of a dent in his support. Each time we saw his polling numbers somewhat the same, he won 72% or so of the, uh, of the primary vote and really came out of that with consolidated Republican support. But of course, the curse came shortly after during the general election cycle when um, as those scandals piled up and as Senator Warnock ran um, with a decided strategy to go to the middle, right, to energize the liberal base, but also give those middle of the road swing voters sort of permission to vote for him by talking about his bipartisan work, by not really 
uh, amplifying his support for President Joe Biden and other liberal policies. That gave them safe harbor, and that proved the difference maker. So candidates matter, and I'd also say candidates matter extends to Governor Kemp, who was able to do the same thing. He was able to consolidate Republican support by beating David Perdue by 52 points in the Republican primary. And then he parlayed that consolidation of, you know, that Republican unity to then go towards the middle throughout most of the general election phase and win over a lot of swing voters, too, who decided not to back Stacey Abrams in really what amounted to a near blowout win, a seven point or so victory, nearly eight points over Stacey Abrams, a candidate who had really fought him to the finish line in 2018 and lost by a razor thin margin. We had two candidates that really focused on specific elements of their base. For example, Herschel Walker, he focused solely on the hard conservative. I don't want transgender women in sports. Um, I want smaller government, the whole bit. You had Stacey Abrams, who was very much promoting liberal policies, expanding Medicaid, um, a program for this, a program for that which would basically expand government. There wasn't a lot of middle of the road with Stacey Abrams and not a lot of middle of the road with Herschel Walker. So has Georgia crossed a point where it is a, a much more middle of the road state? Or is that is that the key to win from now on? What do you think? You know, Shady B, in 2018, Stacey Abrams, the core of her policy was, hey, let's stop being Republican light. Let's embrace core authentic liberal ideals, whether it be gun control, whether it be tax policy, um, economic equality, you name it. That's something that she embraced saying that, hey, if we energize as Democrats, liberal voters who usually skip these midterm elections, then we can win those voters back into our fold and then maybe even also appeal to the middle of the road voters while we're at it. In this election cycle, look, she did have some appeals to the middle. Um, she felt like fighting to preserve abortion access, um, fighting for gun restrictions, advocating for Medicaid expansion, advocating for the legalization of casino gambling. Each of those items had broad support in AJC polls and other polls. But at the same time, she also had this image of being very liberal that might have been popular or might have been more popular in 2018, but really um, served as an anchor this campaign cycle where Governor Kemp was effectively able to command the middle, to claim the center ground by focusing on our next issue, which is it's still the economy stupid. If, if we learned another lesson, it's that the economy in this election cycle reigned supreme. And Cheney, this wasn't a surprise. Every single poll that the AJC and most other outlets did put the economy and jobs as the number one issue. Didn't mean abortion and didn't mean guns weren't important to many voters. And many voters listed them as their first or second most important issue, but more voters listed the economy than any other issue as their paramount concern. And that's something that Governor Kemp identified early in his campaign. I talked to his chief of staff who said basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, if voters tell you the economy is their number one issue, you'd be stupid not to listen to them. So. Every single answer we asked Governor Kemp about, every single issue that came out, he'd answer about Donald Trump, he'd answer about abortion, he'd answer about guns, whatever you might throw at him. But he'd try to pivot his answer back to, and I'm taking steps in Georgia to help insulate, to help cushion the blow of Joe Biden's 40-year high inflation. And he was able to do that 
in, in part with the, with the help of Democratic past federal legislation that Republicans in Georgia opposed, coronavirus relief funding, infrastructure funding, the Inflation Reduction Act, all this is sending, is, has already sent and is sending billions more to Georgia's coffers that he is, has unilateral or almost unilateral power over. Um, so he was able to, you know, go around and announce broadband funding and um, healthcare funding and help for the needy, um, you know, a hundred, couple hundred dollars here and there, um, millions of dollars in pay raises, all these issues that in part Democrats in the Congress passed, but in part were also the result in his view of his economic policies, which included lifting economic restrictions during the early months of the pandemic that, you know, in, in his campaign's vision helped Georgia build up this mighty $6 billion plus surplus that he is now using to promise $2 billion in refunds next year and other steps. So economy, economy, economy. It's not like the other candidates didn't have an economic message. Stacey Abrams certainly did. She just had a lot of other messages and so did Kemp, but she had a more scattershot approach that even fellow Democrats said, okay, well, what's the elevator pitch here? Whereas Governor Kemp, he would go back over and over and over again to the economy. And I knew that if he started straying from that, that meant that his focus groups, his polls, his internal data somehow showed the economy wasn't the salient issue that it, that it had been. And he never really strayed from that. Even when it looked like abortion would become the dominant issue, the governor's message still was economy because the economy was was more stable ground for him to fight on, certainly than the abortion issue. I'm going to paraphrase something that Patricia said, looking back at the Stacey Abrams campaign, is when you try to be everything to everyone, all of your messages get diluted. Yeah, look, that was that was one of the, the when we're talking to, and I, I hear from, from Abrams allies all the time, um, who thought she was, a, you know, she, she could have been a great governor, who thought she was a strong candidate, um, but who had concerns with the fact that she had dozens and dozens of policies and she could recite each one of them, you know, blindfolded. She knew she, this was a candidate who knew the ins and outs of, of every policy that she proposed, but who felt like that rush of policies distracted from any sort of core message. And, you know, we knew that one week she'd be focused and she'd have multiple events about preserving abortion access and expanding abortion rights. And the next week, it might be about gambling. And the next week, it might be about climate control, climate change, I should say. And the next week, it was about, you know, another big issue, higher education. And, you know, in, on one hand, she was trying to show that with a $6 billion surplus to, to spend, that there was a chance for generational change that comes around, you know, once or twice in a lifetime. And she said that Georgia should take advantage of it. On the other hand, when you go against a, an incumbent governor who had some, you know, had, had a, a range of policies, not nearly as many policy proposals as Stacey Abrams did, but had a record to run on, uh, a limited number of promises for a second term agenda, but had this focus, this sort of laser-like focus on the economy, it became that much harder for Stacey Abrams to kind of overcome the clutter, the, the range of her own messaging. All right. This is going to illustrate the the difference between a Greg Bluestein and a Shaney B. I am not a political insider. I just pretend I'm one because I read the jolt and I listen to Politically Georgia. Would Stacey Abrams have been better off to hold off on running in 2022 and wait until the end of Governor Kemp's term? With him being an incumbent and Georgia has been doing pretty well, 
all through the pandemic, you know, even though he Governor Kemp put in place policies, you know, reopening the state early. And there was a lot of people that disagreed with him on that. But time proved he made the right choice. And Georgia's doing all right. Georgians are are doing pretty well. Don't you think she would have been better off waiting to the end of his term to run? This is one of those like hindsight is 2020 because right now we can we can both say yeah you know this was such a tough climate for her to run for another term she should have waited she could have you know she could have been a uh, the talk of 2024 and then run in 2026 but you got to remember it was a year ago it was December of 2021 when she announced and Georgia was in a vastly different place Governor Kemp was being booed at Republican gatherings all around the state I was at many many events with him in the latter half of the year where it felt like he should get combat pay for showing up. I mean, he got heckled, he got booed. He would still stay and talk sometimes for hours with the people who were booing him, who were believing Donald Trump's election fraud lies. These weren't Democrats. These were fellow Republicans, very conservative voters. But at the same time, even smart insiders, even people who were very loyal to Governor Kemp were giving him a 50-50 shot of winning the primary. Donald Trump in September had come to Georgia and headlined a rally where he stood up in front of thousands of Republican activists in Georgia and said he'd rather see Stacey Abrams as governor than Brian Kemp. And he got cheered for it. You know, this was the, this was a jaw-dropping moment for a lot of state Republicans, and it had to be uh, energizing and encouraging to Democrats. David Perdue looked like he was gaining steam, and Stacey Abrams was sort of at the height of her power. She outraised Governor Kemp in the opening months of her of her campaign. She commanded media attention. When she qualified to run at the state capitol a few weeks after she announced her bid, I mean, it's a scene I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. There was Japanese and European media just swarming the capitol. And I was like, what is going on? You know, And this is just for her to fill out paperwork. So she had this sort of hold on attention. Um, she was this national figure. So in hindsight, we can say, okay, she was always doomed. But if you look at the candidate and the campaign in December, 2021, uh, she had a lot of things going for her. She knew it'd be a tough battle. There was no underestimating Governor Brian Kemp and his powers of incumbency and his, and his campaign ethic and all that. But at the same time, she had lots going for her. And I think in her campaign's estimation, they were either going to face Kemp or Purdue, obviously, right? If it was Purdue, it would be a, it would be a MAGA-based campaign where they'd have to run against Donald Trump and it would be very polarizing. But they felt like if it was a rematch against Governor Kemp, that essentially they thought that he was going to be limping out of the primary after a close call against David Purdue and then, and then having to go back to the base and trying to convince the pro-Trump base to support him. But instead, Brian Kemp used that primary uh, period to really consolidate and unify the Republican Party behind him, beats David Perdue by 52 points, and ends up in the summer with 95% of Republicans backing him, according to AJC polls and polls from other outlets. So all that hope from the Abrams campaign that Kemp would emerge shattered and bruised and battered really fell to pieces when Governor Kemp was able to come out stronger from the primary. Let's take a quick break, Shaney B. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown. 
the Trump indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. The other host, Patricia Murphy, is on his well-deserved vacation. And I'm here with producer Shaney B., who doesn't deserve a vacation. <laughs> you also deserve a vacation, <laughs> and so do I. Soon enough, Shaney B., soon enough. But you know what is not taking a vacation, Shaney B.? The Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And did you know that you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC? You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts in your first month of limited digital access is less than a buck. It's not an instance. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. And we are talking about what are the top political lessons learned in Georgia in 2022. We talked about split ticket trend is real, how candidates truly matter, and it's still the economy is stupid. Number four, and this is this was a major takeaway. Donald Trump is losing his steam as Georgia voters reject election fraud lies. This was a major takeaway because, as we just talked about in the last segment, Republican voters decidedly rejected his picks for governor, for attorney general, for insurance commissioner, and for secretary of state. This was a major, major rejection, a major development in Georgia because not so long ago, Shane B., Donald Trump's endorsement was looked at as a golden ticket in Georgia. And no one knows that better than Governor Brian Kemp, who went into a runoff against then-Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle as the underdog. Uh, he had kind of limped into that runoff. He had finished in a, uh, you know, in a distant second place to Casey Cagle, uh, was neck and neck with him in the polls. Casey Cagle was damaged by a secret recording. Governor Kemp looked like you know, he, he could inch out a victory, but not by, you know, a big margin. And then out of the blue, six days before that runoff, Donald Trump decides to endorse him, changes the race, kind of like a snap of the fingers. He went from a close, you know, a close race to a landslide by any measure of the term and found himself on the other side of Donald Trump's wrath a few years later. Um, you know, it goes into this this election cycle with a lot of his supporters wondering if, some, look, there was even talk about him not even qualifying from some Republicans. I don't think it was serious talk. Governor Kemp never never had any doubt in his mind, in his words to me, that he was going to run again. But there was some consideration, there was some talk at least, that, he, that Governor Kemp was such damaged goods without Donald Trump's endorsement that he couldn't win. And a few months later, he had turned the political world on its head. Kemp easily wins. Chris Carr easily defeats a, a Trump-backed challenger. Brad Raffensperger beats a Trump-backed challenger. Uh, John King, the insurance commissioner, beat a, a Trump-backed challenger who ran on the platform of fighting woke insurance, whatever, whatever that means. I don't think anyone still knows what that candidacy was all about. And you know, even Trump-backed candidates for open U.S. House seats lost 
and lost by fairly big margins in the North Atlanta suburbs and up in Northeast Georgia. So Trump's brand took a real, real hit in the state of Georgia. But Cheney B., in other states, you know, you saw him kind of take second-tier candidates and turn them into that golden ticket. Georgia might be the anomaly there, and that's in part because we have we had incumbents like Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger who had their own base of support and were able to overwhelm the Trump tide. And the Trump-backed candidates that won were in states where he didn't try to interfere with the results of their election. And I think what happened here in Georgia is as time went on and things were investigated, the quote unquote suitcases at State Farm Arena, all the way to the the phone call with Brad Raffensperger, them showing up at the Cobb County precinct where they were doing a recount, um, all the intimidation, all the tactics. I think Georgians just got really PO'd that their vote was being challenged by somebody's ego rather than facts. And I this is just my opinion, and I hope that's okay for me to be rattling off my opinion yes. here on Politically Georgia. But I think just people had enough, and it turned a lot of Trump voters to say, just go away. Leave us alone. And it's almost like a Trump endorsement in Georgia is a poison pill. You know, it became a lot harder, obviously, in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 for Trump allies to argue this was some partisan, you know, in partisan issue when it came to counting the votes because the state's statewide leaders were not just Republicans, they're very conservative. I mean, by any measure, Governor Kemp is no moderate and he'd be the last person to tell you he's a moderate. He's very conservative. And again, you know, had enjoyed and embraced Donald Trump's endorsement just a few years earlier. So suddenly to make him the scapegoat for Donald Trump's loss really rang hollow to many voters um, you know, after they got past the fact that Donald Trump and, and Brian Kemp were fighting. And it's not just independent and swing voters who, who, of course, play that important role, but it's also a lot of conservative voters. And I've talked to many, you know, I've, and I've surveyed activists in rural Georgia who, you know, lead very deep red counties who just say they're tired of Donald Trump, they're tired of the antics, they're tired of the back and forth, they're ready to move on. But then again, there's still a core of MAGA supporters who will say that they're going to back Trump no matter what. It might be 20%, might be 25%, it might be, you know, as high as 30%. Who knows? It might be higher. And we're going to find out in 2023 and in 2024 just the depth of that support for Donald Trump because his comeback bid is going to get a lot more attention, I think. Um, so far, it's kind of landed with a dud, it feels like, in places like Georgia. I don't know about other places around the nation, but has not been the talk of the town. But as he does more events and as he revs up, and of course, as attention casts in the Fulton County Courthouse about whether or not he'll face uh, criminal charges for his role in trying to overturn the election results in Georgia, there'll be a lot more Trump talk and there might be even more polarization than we've seen over the last few years. Is there a certain point in the Fulton County investigation, if that special purpose grand jury does recommend that District Attorney Fonnie Willis pursue charges against the former president, is there something there that could eventually disqualify his candidacy? That's a good question. If, if Donald Trump ends up facing criminal charges, could that could that derail his candidacy? And, you know, he'll do what it takes to kind of delay any sort of trial and any sort of legal maneuvering, um, because that's probably serves in his best interest. 
as a candidate for president. But, you know, look, you've, you've heard this from Republicans before who have been on that side of legal scrutiny. And you've heard it from Democrats before. They use it as a rallying cry. So Donald Trump says it's a witch hunt. Um, he says that, you know, Democrats are so afraid of him, they're, they're concocting charges to file against him. So it can be sort of this rallying around the, the circle, the bandwagons, rally around the flag um, sort of effect for Donald Trump. But at the same time, there's a lot of Republicans out there who are just tired and they want to move on. We've heard it. Um, we heard it in the muted reaction in Georgia to his, to his announcing his comeback bid. Um, there was a lot of senior Republican officials who felt like that was sort of final nail in the coffin to Herschel Walker because it would cast more attention and, and help energize Democrats. I don't know if that was, you know, the defining reason why Herschel Walker lost because there's a lot of different reasons and it was cl- it still was a very close race. But Trump doesn't seem to have the same enduring effect he did a couple years ago in Georgia. But that all can change and it especially can change if there's a big crowded field of, of Republican presidential candidates by the time the vote gets to Georgia. Because in a race like that, if the votes are split and Donald Trump, even with 30, 35% of support, who knows, he could win in a state like Georgia if there's six or seven other candidates running against him. It's going to be so interesting to see. It's going to be something. And that goes into our final lesson, which is Georgians are engaged, we turn out, and we matter. And because this election taught us anything is that Georgia is going to continue as a spotlight. I think the spotlight gets even brighter because over the next few weeks, we're going to hear whether or not Atlanta lands the Democratic National Convention in 2024. We're going to find out if Georgia is able to move up closer, higher in the schedule for presidential primary voting, which would give Georgia voters from both sides of the party line a more say in who their presidential nominees will be. And we'll see a lot more presidential visits because Georgians are now used to being in a swing state. We're now used to being, you know, the center of the white hot political uh, spotlight. And we've had, you know, a runoff election in 2020 that decided control of the U.S. Senate. We've had another runoff election in 2022 that helped cushion the Democratic lead, uh, the advantage in the Senate. Of course, Georgia voters helped Joe Biden beat out Donald Trump in 2020. Um, And at the same time, Georgia voters helped ensure that Governor Brian Kemp and another group of Republican statewide officials maintained their control of all these statewide offices. So we've been through the most expensive U.S. Senate races in the nation's history, the most expensive, some of the most expensive governor races in in the nation's history. Not the most expensive, but one of the most expensive. Um, We've all seen the ads. And despite all that, all this sort of election exhaustion, despite Raphael Warnock's name being on the ballot five times in the last two years, voters still came out and they came out in large numbers. Significantly, um, you know, robust turnout, record setting turnout in some of these elections. And, you know, voters are engaged. And if our primary date gets moved up sooner... Greg, let's you, you and me, let's just put our money together, buy a couple of TV and radio stations <laughs> because the advertising dollars and the, the money spent in Georgia is just going to explode. One of the takeaway numbers for me for this year came via the Wall Street Journal, which analyzed how, many, how much TV stations were raking in from these ads. Our partners over at WSB, uh, they had the they were the single largest benefactor of TV ad spending. Fox 5, 
W-A-G-A. Wasn't that far behind, just a couple rungs down. Um, I wrote a story earlier this year about how those TV stations, radio stations were taking advantage smartly, shrewdly in my view, of all this ad spending by by adding more telecasts. Adding newscasts, yeah. But, so yeah, they could have more, more inventory, yeah. So they could soak up even more of this ad spending because if the money's out there, why, you know... <laughs> Why not? You don't um, leave money on the table, Greg. <laughs> yep. And there's look, that, that spending went primarily to TV, but it also went radio to online. Um, there was plenty of spending on canvassing, get out the vote operations. And there was even spending on unique things like a hype house that Stacey Abrams campaign uh, devised to try to, uh, you know, put together social media TikTok videos in Midtown Atlanta. So you've seen all sorts of uh, unique spending because look when you got the cash <laughs> there's different ways to use it that's right well shaney b let's say that's our final lesson of 2022 but there'll be uh, there's lessons. one more lesson that i learned oh what's the lesson you learned it is a good time sitting in patricia's seat i see why she comes back every wednesday every friday <laughs> or whenever big news breaks we have a fun job this is why i kind of like the politically georgia job sometimes better than the newsletter or the blog or the print paper or all the other hats that we wear at the AJC because we just get to kind of talk about what's going on in the weird, wacky political world here in Georgia. It's a great, great podcast, Greg, and I'm honored to be part of it. And I look forward to really watching great things happen for this podcast in 2023. We paid you to say that. And Janie B, it has been an honor working with you. All the listeners, we have one more episode uh, in a couple days before the new year. So we'll say happy new year to you twice. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.